speeding bullets. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Yes, it's Superman. Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman, who can change the course of mighty rivers, bend steel in his bare hands, and who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 40 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and in this episode, we are going to continue our run toward the end of season two of The Adventures of Superman. This will be the penultimate Season 2 episode for me, as I'll be covering episodes 23 and 24 of the 26th episode, second season, The Lady in Black, and Star of Fate. But before I get to the business of this week's episode, I just wanted to point out that the show has reached a milestone. It just came to my attention earlier tonight when I was posting the latest episode that this will be the 50th episode on the Man of Screen podcast feed. Now, obviously, this is only episode 40 of the proper Man of Screen podcast, but when you add in the two specials I did in March, the Man of Steel commentary and the first Batman v Superman episode that I did when the movie was, was released in theaters, you had those two specials, plus the eight Man of Screen extras that I've done, this makes this episode 50 on the feed. 51 if you count the promo for the George Reeves stuff, but I don't count that, so. Overall, this is the 50th podcast episode I produced, and I'm pretty proud of that fact. I've done my best over the past 40 weeks to bring you an entertaining and informative show, and I hope I've succeeded in doing that. I know from looking at the numbers that some of that a bunch of you are out there listening, so I would just like to thank you for listening and continuing to support the show, and knowing you're out there really uh, keeps this show going for me. It, it makes it all worth doing. So just to all of the listeners out there who helped me get to 50 overall episodes, obviously I won't be celebrating the 50th episode of the Man of Screen podcast proper for another 10 weeks. But, like I said, this means a lot to me to be able to get to 50 episodes in 40 weeks. So, I just want to say thank you to everybody out there. Even though I don't always, I don't hear from a lot of you, just knowing that you're listening really helps keep this show going, and I just wanted to send my gratitude out to you all. So, with that being said, I'm going to take a quick podcast break, I'll play a promo, and then I'm going to come back with Lady in Black. Hang around, folks. As superhero movies are becoming mainstream entertainment at theaters around the world, comic fans also have plenty of heroic action on the small screen to keep them sated while waiting for the next blockbuster. We are in a golden age of superhero television shows, with plenty of offerings from both the Marvel and DC universes, and the trend shows no sign of slowing down. To chronicle these recent shows and even examine some of the classics, we are proud to present Weekly Heroics, a two true freaks guide to heroes on TV. In every podcast, we'll be doing recaps of individual episodes of one Marvel show and one DC show until we catch up to them or some supervillains shut us all down. My name is Scott McGregor, and I'm the fastest podcaster alive. That's what she said. And I'm Chris Tyler, one of your agents of cool. To bring you this podcast, we each have to become someone else. We each have to become something else. Two, two, All right, welcome back, folks. I'm going to head right into Lady in Black. Original broadcast date was February 15th, 1954. Writer was Jackson Gillis, and director was Tommy Carr. Guest cast include Virginia Christine as Mrs. Frank, Frank Ferguson as Lester Frank, John Doucette as Joe the Scarfaced Man, Rudolph Anders as X-40, the man with glasses, Holly Bain as the police officer, and Frank Marlowe as the cab driver. Now for our synopsis, brought to you by supermanhomepage.com. Superman, in his guise of reporter Clark Kent, is working late in his office at the Daily Planet when he receives a call from Jimmy Olsen. Daily Planet, Kent speaking. Oh, hi, Mr. Kent. This is Jimmy. I knew you were working late this week, so I thought I'd phone and say hello. Hello, Jimmy. What do you want? I'm awfully busy. Why don't you kiss your mother goodnight and go to sleep? <laughs> that would be a little difficult. You see, she's away visiting relatives in Michigan. I'm staying at the apartment of a friend of hers, old Mrs. Jones. You wouldn't like to stop by on the way home, would you? Well, I'd like to, Jimmy, but I can't. I'm very busy. The address is 360 Apple Tree Lane. It's an old place, stuck between a bunch of warehouses. All right, Jimmy, let's have it. What did you want to see me about? I don't need you. Except, um... Uh, I hear noises. Jimmy, 
What did you have for dinner? Well, I had uh, a couple hot dogs, some ice cream, and uh, two pickles, and uh, I've been reading here a, a, a mystery story. I see. What you have is indigestion of the imagination. Now, I'll tell you what I'll do. Just before I leave, I'll give you a ring. What's your number? It's uh, Metropolis 71683. All right. Now, go to sleep. Ice cream, pickles. I suppose that's it. Jimmy continues to hear things in spite of Clark's assurances otherwise. The picture on the wall has even fallen. Mrs. Jones' neighbor, Mr. Lester Frank, has gone with him to investigate the basement, where a track has supposedly got. Hey, what goes on here anyway? Rent, depreciation, bad heating. Goes on all the time. No. I mean those noises in Mrs. Jones' apartment. No, hot water pipes, maybe. Never noticed her complaining. She's deaf. It's a blessing in disguise, my boy. She can't hear the clatter of her own knitting needles. Well, it wasn't my imagination that knocked that picture off the wall. Yeah, truck going by outside, maybe. Well, unless I'm crazy, that truck just drove into the basement. All right, I'll go take a look. But I've already been there. It's just a tiny place. Wait a minute, I'll go with you. Listen. It's louder. Mr. Wait, do you hear him? Meanwhile, Clark has called to make sure Jimmy is okay, only to discover that the telephone has been suddenly disconnected. Superman has found Jimmy being cared for by Mr. Frank in Mrs. Jones' apartment. What happened to him? Oh, I didn't either. I mean, kid hurt himself. Superman. Hello, Jimmy. Ken said you'd been hearing noises, but he didn't say anything about your seeing stars. Oh, I'm all right now. Something hit me. <laughs> Same thing happens to me every time I go down in the basement to look at the furnace. There's a low bridge. Oh, you mean you just ran into a beam? Yeah, it's only this high. The place must have been made for midgets. I guess maybe that was it. I couldn't see anything. Well, what were you doing down there anyway, Jimmy? Investigating those noises? I know you don't believe me, Superman, but I heard them. The kid was right. There was something. His name's Timothy, best mouse catcher in the business, provided you're in the business of catching mouses. <laughs> <laughs> I see. The best and the noisiest, I take it. Anything gets between Timothy and a mouse is a goner. <laughs> Including me. Hello, Timothy. Hey, you'd better take him to a hospital, I'd say. Now, let's see. No. No, there's no fracture. Just an overdose of hot dogs and reckless cats, I'd say. <laughs> I'm sorry, Superman. I guess you shouldn't have bothered. That's all right, Jimmy. Kent was worried. He heard something funny when he tried to phone you. Well, I guess that was my fault. I knocked over the phone when I brought your friend into the room here. There, now you see, Jimmy, there's a logical explanation for everything. You try and get some sleep, boy. The painting on Mrs. Jones's wall has changed. Instead of having only one eye like it did before, it now has two. Jimmy cannot help but wonder if he is going insane. It is now the next morning, and Jimmy believes that much of what he saw and heard the night before was in his mind. However, strange things have occurred since he left Mrs. Jones' apartment to catch the bus. A man with a scar on his face asks for the building's number as he threatens Jimmy. <laughs> I'm sorry. Hey, kid, what's your hurry? Well, I'm not in any hurry, but the bus I'm trying to catch usually is. Which house is 360? That's it, right there. What time is it? It's almost 8 o'clock. But uh, I think my coat just got tangled in your fist. It's gotten tangled, he says. So he did, didn't he? Is there a back entrance? Yeah. Where is it? It's in the back. And this is the front one? Well, now, unless they put the front in the back and the back in the front, I'd say, yeah. Yeah, I'd say, he says. Look, uh, what is it you wanted? Nothing, nothing at all. I'm just a friendly type. Yeah, I should have known by the way you acted. It was nice seeing you. How could it be nice when it never really happened, huh? It never really happened? Yeah, you catch on fast, don't you, kid? You ain't seen nobody, especially me. Nobody, especially you. Yeah, that's right. You know, if a kid's smart, he can live to be a ripe old age. But if he ain't, he can get old and die all of a sudden. Just like that. The cover reporter then encounters an odd man with glasses, codenamed X-40. Hey, mister, do you see that guy over there? No, I guess you didn't. 
guess you didn't. And a mysteriously veiled lady in black has gotten out of a taxi. I do not think it will rain today. Do you? I must have combed my hair this morning to look like an information booth. Good. That's very good. Watch out, though. The clouds are very near. What did you say? He said the clouds are very near. That's what I thought you said. Taxi! Hey, mister! You forgot your cloud! I mean, package! Don't, you fool! Who was he? Who was who? Well, um, maybe if I start with an easier question. Who are you? Please. I am the lady in black. Well, really, I'm on my way to work right now. Please. It is a matter of life and death. Now, just tell me one thing. Where is 360 Pear Tree Lane? That's my place, right? No. This is Apple Tree Lane. There's no Pear Tree Lane in Metropolis. What? Oh, no. But an X-40 must have made the same mistake. X-40? That must either be an airplane or the guy with the glasses. I'll be late. And with this... Maybe that other guy made the same mistake. What? What other guy? Was he tall? Did he have a scar? No, look, lady, are you trying to kid me? Because I don't know whether I'm on the outside looking in or the inside looking out. Answer me. What other man? That guy right over there. What will I do? Well, um, if you stick with me, you will be on the next bus to the South Sea Islands. Oh, no. Get me away from here. If there were a crowd, we could meld into it. Shh. He's not looking now. Quickly, come. The alley. Fine. The exit's down there at the end of the hall. So long. Wait. It may take me all day to find Pear Tree Lane. Perhaps I should stay here. Oh, no. Do I frighten you so? If only you knew my plight. I've got a few plights of my own to take care of, lady. Look into my eyes. Sure. Deeper. The light's not very good in here. I can see well enough to know that I can trust you. Here. You can trust me, lady, but not with this. Keep it. Tell no one. I will get in touch with you. Wait a second. Cannot betray me. Hey, lady, wait a minute. You forgot your package. The only response given is a knife thrown at him by Joe. It misses Jimmy and gets lodged in the doorway. Jimmy even phones Clark Kent for help, but the conversation gets cut off. After finding the cash missing, Jimmy goes next door to ask Mr. Frank for assistance. What Jimmy finds frightens him to no end. Mr. Frank is dead. Hey, Mr. Frank! Mr. Frank... Superman! Am I glad to see you. Jimmy, you'd better explain why. He dragged me in here off the street bodily and told me that somebody was... What did you say he was? I said he was murdered right in there. Officer, we're terribly sorry to have bothered you. Well, if there's been a murder, I gotta there report. There hasn't been, and I'll take it from here. Thank you just the same. Superman, you just have to believe me. Take a look for yourself. I already have x-ray vision, remember? But I'm telling you the truth. Jimmy, did you ever hear the story of the boy that cried wolf just once too often? Wait a minute, please. First, there came the man with the scar. Then X-40 with the glasses. Then the lady in black. Yes, the lady in black, wearing a long black veil with a strange foreign accent. That's right, she's the one who gave me the package. Stuffed with money, $1,000 bills, generally. How'd you know? <laughs> Jimmy, that tired plot's been keeping mystery writers alive for the past 20 years. Well, it hasn't done the same thing for Mr. Frank. He's dead. Yeah? Come in. Oh, it's you again. I'm just waiting for the missus to get back with some breakfast. Would you care for a cup of coffee? No, thank you. What? But you were dead. Oh, please, Mr. Frank, why don't you lie down dead like you were when I last saw you? It would make things so much easier. <laughs> How's that head of yours this morning? It's a bad bump you got there. I know. You both think I'm crazy. 
Well, you're probably right. Oh, how'd you do? How do you do? I don't think you've met the missus. I tell you right now, Superman, if you're looking for a room, you won't find one here. No lobsters this morning, Les. Um, Miss Frank, you didn't happen to find a dagger sticking in the screen door, did you? Oh, yeah, sure. Kids are always putting it there. But I fixed them. You know, I wouldn't mind if all this happened at night. But it's just not decent for it to happen in the broad daylight. Jimmy, there's only one reason I'm not giving you another lecture right now. That's because I have to get back to the office. Office? Yes, uh, Kent has some work that he has to finish, and he can't start unless I'm there to help him. Oh. I'm sorry to be a trouble to you. Yeah, think nothing of it, son. Gee, he sure flies pretty. Yeah, he won't be back. I was hoping maybe they'd take the kid to a psychiatrist or something. Yeah, it doesn't make any difference if he stays. If he hears a noise and yells for help, they won't come running this time. Well, here's the other one. Joe shouldn't have left that sticking in the door. Yeah, well, you shouldn't have mixed up those pictures with the eyes in them. Well, I had to. We had a buyer last night. That one-eyed thing was worth $5,000 to us. Yeah, so you shouldn't have stashed it in the old lady's apartment in the first place. Why not? Best place to hide a picture is in an art gallery. How was I to know the kid would show up? Besides, he's so rattled, one more eye isn't going to make any difference. Oh, eyes, eyes, eyes. I'm sick of moderns. Well, then you're like what we're getting tonight. I located a Rembrandt in the warehouse. Boys are taking it out through the basement. Got a good imitation to put in its place, too. Well, I tell you something right now. That Rembrandt better not have more than two eyes. And Rembrandt knew what he was doing. Yeah, so do I. Gee, I wish they'd had lobsters today. Jimmy calls Clark after hearing more noises from the basement. To make the cub reporter feel less frightened, Kent talks to him while writing an article for the Daily Planet. Nervous Olson, no doubt. Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Kent. I didn't mean to bother you, but I just had to. Look, you, you never have been over here. Superman has, but not you. But I've been spared a wild goose chase. Hey, Mr. Kent, don't hang up. I just got to talk to somebody. All right, Jim, you go right ahead and talk if it makes you feel better. Well, um, you see, um, I just lying over on the couch and begin to hear those noises. There was um, just a tapping and a scraping and, uh, and the voices. But so faint, I, I, I couldn't really hear them. There they are. Ah, look out for my foot. Move your foot. Mm -hmm. If only Superman were here, I can't understand him, but I bet he could. Jim, be quiet. And watch out for those buyers. Watch out, he says. That's what them warehouse people ought to be doing. By the time we get through, they'll have a vault full of fakes, and we'll have a pocket full of dough from the originals. But what I don't get is why we have to split the dough with them upstairs. We didn't put the hole through the basement wall. Huh? Now you've done it. This is where the telephone wires come in. Wires, he says. I fixed them before, didn't I? But what if somebody is talking again? Oh, relax. Maybe they ain't broke. Well, I, I better go up again and make sure that they keep a sharp eye on that kid. There. I can't hear him anymore now. But I know one thing. That cat doesn't talk when he's chasing the mouse. Hey, Mr. Kent? Is something out with this telephone? Mr. Kent? Oh, where are you? Mr. Kent. I, I know you think I'm just yelling wolf, but I'm not, and never have been. Look, please, even if you have put the telephone down, would you listen just a little bit? That's all set. She's going to make double sure that kid is going to be out of our hair. You know, sometimes I think that Mr. Frank is a genius. You sit down too much. We have three more pictures in there to switch. All right, all right. What's the matter? I heard something. Sounded like it came from the other part of the warehouse beyond the vault. These walls are two feet thick. You can't hear nothing through that. Come. 
So, Mr. Kent, how can I convince anybody? Oh, no. The last time I saw you, you were closely followed by a dagger meant for me. But you are safe now. That is what I came to find out. Oh, yeah. Well, you shouldn't have bothered. A postcard would have done very nicely. Ah, but a postcard would not make sure that nothing interferes with what is going on. Well, uh, just what is going on, lady in black? Perhaps it is better if I take you with me until this is all over. Oh, yeah, well, uh, if you take me with you, it will be all over. Mr. Kent! No! Superman has dealt with X-40 and Job before more art can be stolen. The Man of Steel heads upstairs to find Mr. Frank shooting at him. The bullets have no effect as Superman enters Mrs. Jones' apartment to find the Lady in Black with Jimmy. Superman! Hello, Jimmy. Looks like I owe you an apology. You mean I'm not crazy? There really were voices? Of course there were, Jimmy. Old Mrs. Jones was deaf or she would have heard them too. I, I must have the wrong apartment. Excuse me, please. please. I'm sorry, but no. I do not understand any of this. That makes two of us. But why all the cloak and dagger stuff? In order to gain possession of some very valuable paintings, Jimmy. When you moved in, they had to try a very fancy trick. And it almost worked. They had you so framed with excitement that no one would have paid any attention to you, regardless of how much you cried out for help. I am sorry. I do not know about any of this. No? You would not touch a lady. Of course not. Watch, Jimmy, and I'll show you how things in your imagination can be completely blown away. <laughs> Shall we join the others, Mrs. Frank? Here, Jimmy, you might want to finish this. Mr. Kent, are you still there? Jeepers, did you hear it? Did you hear all that? Sure he did, Jimmy. When I was getting ready to cover this episode, I really wasn't looking forward to it a whole lot. But you know what? And this is just not me blowing with smoke up the show's butt, but I didn't find this episode to be as bad as I thought it was initially. You know, I remembered the some of the details, like the the one-eyed painting and the two, the painting with the changing eyes, which were just several different paintings. And I remember the lady in the black, but I really didn't remember much else about this episode. But when I was watching this episode to prepare the show, I was entertained by it. You know, it's not going to go down in history as one of the greatest episodes of the series, but it was okay. Now, Jack Larson does a good job of playing a frazzled Jimmy that kind of feels like he's losing his mind a little bit because the art thieves are setting things up so he kind of doubts himself and other people doubt him. So it tells a good story about the boy who cried wolf. And the story is even alluded to by Superman during the course of the episode. But just shows that Jimmy didn't cry foul at all because, as we saw, it was all a setup. So let's get into this thing, shall we? First off, this episode is based on uh, the Batman story Dick Grayson's Nightmare, published in Batman number 80 in December 1953. That story, although I haven't read it, just from what I've read about it, you know, it's a very similar story where Dick Grayson is hearing the sound and he has to kind of figure out what's going on and how to foil the art thieves. No Superman, nobody else, just Robin. He has to figure it all out as Robin. So, But we're not dealing with Batman and Robin, but we're dealing with Superman here. So we start off with Clark pounding out something on his typewriter when he gets a frantic call from Jimmy. You know, Bob and I have frequently talked about the absence of Clark's typewriter quite a bit. You really don't see the typewriter unless Clark needs it. Well, right here he needs it. We'll see a few scenes of him typing throughout the run of this episode. So apparently Jimmy's mother is away and he's staying at one of her friend's house, Mrs. Jones, who is apparently deaf. It's unclear whether Mrs. Jones is at the apartment. The synopsis says he's house-sitting, but I can only wonder why would he need to house-sit at somebody else's house when his mother is away. You'd have to, you would think his mother would want him to house-sit her own house, but... We actually don't know whether Mrs. Jones is there or not. We just never see her. So Jimmy is hearing some noises, and Clark you know, kind of asks him a little bit about what he ate, and if he ate some hot dogs, he's reading a mystery novel, some beans, the pickles. So Clark just calls it indigestion of the imagination, and to kind of told Jimmy to stop bothering him and go to bed. You know, from and from the franticness of 
the way Jimmy speaks to Clark on the phone, it's clear that he wants Clark to show up, and he's just not really willing to say that he wants to help. You know, he kind of tells Clark, no, I don't need you to come over. I'm at, 30, I'm at 360 Apple Tree Lane. He really wants Clark to come, and you know what? Clark doesn't come. So what happens after that is uh, Jimmy puts down the book, appropriately titled The Lady in Black, and he goes to get a different book from the other side of the room, and as Jimmy walks across, he's met with a creepy-looking painting with, with an eye on the top right corner there. One eye, right side, near the top. Remember that. It's important. You know, Jimmy looks back at that painting, kind of gives it a what-are-you-looking-at type of thing, but it's creepy. At least I think it is. Now, whatever sound Jimmy is hearing, though, at least according to his portrayal, it looks like it could be coming from downstairs. And then while Jimmy is reading the second book, just to add to the creepiness factor of what's going on here, that painting falls right off the wall and goes straight down behind the couch. We don't actually see that painting ever again, so I'm wondering if there's some kind of maybe trap door or something in Mrs. Jones's floor behind the couch for which the painting can just kind of go where it needs to go. Because we never see it again after this moment. So anyway, the the falling painting sends Jimmy scurrying into the hallway. And it just looks to me like he's randomly opening doors to other people's apartments. And then he sees an open door to another man's apartment. And this is our first look at Lester Frank. You know, tall, skinny guy with some glasses. Like I said, he's at his table playing solitaire. And Jimmy asks him about the sounds that he heard. And, you know, very indifferent. He suggests that it could be the pipes. But then Jimmy points out that he has a truck in the basement, and that sends him out to go check it out. Obviously, from we know what we know from the synopsis, and hopefully you've watched this episode, he knows what's going on. And Jimmy follows him and apparently gets knocked out by something. You know, we don't know what at first. But So then the camera takes us back to Clark, and it's nice to see that he covered up his typewriter with a tarp at the end of the night. But he did call Jimmy as he promised, and, you know, the phone is answered, and then someone hangs up. So that's kind of ominous in and of itself. and. Clark takes this opportunity to head over to the storeroom and change into Superman. And as we get toward the end of season two, the producers and the editors are getting, the directors and the editors really, are getting better about matching up Clark's hat with trips to the storeroom. Many times I pointed out earlier in the season, you know, thanks to Bob Fisher for pointing this out to me, that a lot of times Clark will leave his office without his hat on. And then when he goes to the storeroom, he has the hat on. This time, though, he leaves the desk without his hat on, and goes, walks down the hall to the storeroom without his hat on. So it's nice to see that they're matching that up now as the season comes to an end. Superman shows up and he starts to try to find out what's going on as Mr. Frank helps Jimmy back into Mrs. Jones's place. If you look closely at Jimmy's forehead, he's got a nice sized bruise up there. You know, the other guy says Jimmy was hit with a crossbeam down in the basement. You know, that's a likely story because basement ceilings tend to be a little lower than your average ceilings in, an, in a house or an apartment. So. If you're tall enough, you can hit your head on a pipe or something down in the basement. So, it is a possible story. But, you know, there is the issue of, of, there is the issue of why did someone pick up the phone and then hang it up? In order to divert suspicion, Mr. Frank says that he accidentally knocked the phone and hung it up while he was kind of moving Jimmy around. And he comes up with a nice little cover story about what's going on in the basement. And he blames it on a cat named Timothy. So, apparently this whole thing is the cat's fault. And personally, from my own experience, I can believe this. Because I want to say about, I don't know, maybe six or so years ago when I lived in my apartment upstate. Lived in a two-family house. I was living alone at the time. A stray cat from the neighborhood had gotten into the basement of the house I lived in. I don't know how it got in there. I can only guess somebody going into the basement from outside. It was a shared basement. Accident let it in. And, oh my god, it took me days to find what was meowing in the basement. Eventually, we got it out, but you know what? If there's a cat down there, it's going to get into stuff, and it's going to make some noise. So, I could definitely believe a cat could cause a ruckus. So, like I said, it's all the cat's fault. And, oh, by the way, after all this, that painting is back. You know, the one that fell off the wall before? Well, a painting is back, but it's now has two eyes, and Jimmy notices that there's something different about the painting, but he just kind of thinks he's misremembering. So, the next morning, Jimmy notices that the painting is back, but now it has two eyes. So, he just kind of chalks that up to his own misremembering what the paintings looked like from the night before. I guess that's possible. I mean, if you don't know a painting very well, you're going to maybe doubt that you saw what you thought you saw earlier and just kind of go with the new reality. Now, if Jimmy had been to this place quite a bit and saw this painting frequently, I would not think that he would misremember what the painting looked like. 
But either way, Jimmy is feeling much better about himself today. He kind of picks up that mystery book, that Lady in Black book, throws it away, and he's off on his day. He has a very humorous encounter with Joe with the scar, who seems like he's threatening, and, you know, kind of, he asks Jimmy if it's the front door, and Jimmy asks him, yeah, this is the front door, and the back door is in the back, unless the, but it could be, the back door could be the front door if the front of the house was moved to the back, blah, 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 blah. Obviously, uh, Joe here has got Jimmy by the collar of his jacket, so there's definitely something sinister going on here. Eh. And I'm going to say right off, there's a lot of creepy people in this part of town. Because Jimmy asked the guy he sees at the bus stop if he saw the man with the scar, but the man who we come to know later, his name is X-40, or at least that's an alias, turns around and he's got these huge glasses on. Looks like he has magnifying lenses in them, and his eyes just look huge, almost gives him the bug eyes look. Next, as if we didn't have enough mystery with Joe, the scarred man, and X-40 with the huge glasses, now a woman in a black dress comes out of a cab, and she stands next to Jimmy. She's to Jimmy's left, and X-40 is to Jimmy's right. She makes a comment about the weather, which is obviously a code, and Jimmy makes a glib comment, but X-40 obviously understood it and dropped the package. It's all very mysterious, and the lady in black is saying that whatever is going on is a matter of life and death, and she feels threatened by, at least she's saying that she feels threatened by the man with the scar. Jimmy is just swept up into everything that's going on here, but he's trying to get away from it all. Poor Jimmy is just trying to get on the bus to go to work. But the lady in black won't let him get away. And now she's getting real close. And Jimmy is doing everything he can to extricate himself from this situation and failing miserable, miserably. And like I said, poor Jimmy is just terrified. And But whatever she's trying to do, it ends up working. Is Jimmy ends up with a package full of cash. And she actually even lands a kiss on his cheek. And you know, Jimmy is just trying to get away. A woman is kissing Jimmy, so that's kind of a indication for him to run and get the hell out of there. We saw all of Jimmy's uh, ineptitude with the ladies with uh, regards to uh, Tony's wife in the My Friend Superman episode. But I think the advances here from the lady in black is scaring the hell out of him. So Jimmy now has a box full of money, and, well, he tries to get it back to her, but all he ends up with is a knife being thrown at him, and it nearly hits him. She just kind of sends him running back into the house. To the telephone, calling for help. Either Clark, Lois, or anybody. Actually, we don't even see Lois or Perry in this episode. It's just Clark and Jimmy as far as series regular go. Which is unusual for the second season, as season two was really more of an ensemble than season one was. We tend to see the cast in every episode more and more now than we did in the previous season. Now, you if you look at the shot of Jimmy on the phone, the camera pans to the left, and there's a creepy painting behind Jimmy of a clown. And if I didn't know better... I would think it was looking at him. I don't know if it is or isn't, but I didn't see any indications like eyes moving behind the painting as you'll see in some things where they're using the painting as a kind of a viewport. But ugh, that, that shot was definitely designed to make it look like the painting was watching Jimmy. And if that's the goal, then it succeeded. Now, meanwhile, Clark is laughing at Jimmy's story, but the, the phone call went out and now Clark is... Back on his way, here we see the same shot of him walking to the storeroom that we saw earlier in the episode. And right now, Jimmy's about to leave the apartment. Personally, I wouldn't. I would stay there. But Jimmy doesn't. All the money that was spilled out on the hallway floor is gone. So now Jimmy goes to see Mr. Frank. And when he opens the door to Mr. Frank's apartment, we don't see what Jimmy sees. So that really gets Jimmy, whatever Jimmy saw, gets him pretty upset. And he runs out and drags the cop in. As Superman is kind of standing at the in the hallway looking seven different kinds of angry. Jimmy thought Mr. Frank was dead as Superman dismissed the officer. You know, and this is where J Superman lectures Jimmy about the boy who cried wolf, which basically gives us our moral for the episode. Unless you're sure, don't call for help. We recently had to teach my daughter this lesson in the pool. I mean, you know, she was just kind of playing, yelling for help, but I had to teach her, no, in the pool, you don't call for help unless we actually need it. Because you don't want to waste the time of the emergency services people. Whether they be paramedics, police, or lifeguards. Obviously, Jimmy was very concerned that Mr. Frank was dead. Because obviously, my best guess is that when Jimmy came in, Mr. Frank just kind of laid down on the floor pretending to be dead. Mostly for Jimmy's benefit. And between Mr. Frank and Superman yelling at him. All this time, Mr. Frank is just remaining very calm and patient with Jimmy. You know, as he's trying to show concern for the boy. That maybe there's something wrong with it. Maybe he's just going crazy. I'm getting to the point where Jimmy is convinced he's going crazy. And it's almost believable because Mr. Frank attributes it kind of to the bump on Jimmy's head. Maybe he's got a concussion or something and he's not seeing things the way he should be. Things like that. And then we meet 
his wife, who produces a dagger when asked, and she shows it to Jimmy, and it's clearly made of rubber. You know, she kind of blows that off and kind of blames it on the neighborhood kids. You know, the neighborhood kids that we never see. But, you know, they're there. Kids are all out there, you know, being kids, causing what the adults would consider to be trouble. But when written reality, they're just kids being kids. This is where Superman decides not to give Jimmy another lecture. How nice of him. You would think Superman, being who he is, and knowing Jimmy for who he is, would be a little more patient with Jimmy and, you know, Find out if there's something wrong instead of just yelling at him for wasting his time. But that's not the way it goes here. The only reason Superman's not going to lecture him again, because Superman has nothing better to do, he has to get back to the office, potentially exposing his secret identity. But of course, then he corrects himself to say that Clark can't start whatever he's doing unless Superman is there to help him. I don't know what Clark could possibly need Superman for, but he does. Maybe he needs a court or something. I don't know. So when Mrs. Frank comes into the room, you know... We can tell. It's clear that she's the lady in black. The voice is similar, just no accent. And then eventually she pulls out the real dagger out of her shopping bag. And then she kind of lectures Frank about screwing up with the picture with the eyes, who said he had no choice. And this is kind of where we learn what the Franks are up to. And they are basically selling art and hiding stuff in the apartment that Jimmy is staying in. Apparently, with Mrs. Jones's deafness, you can go in and out of that apartment and it won't bother her too much. Jimmy goes back to reading and he's hearing noises again. At some point, like Mr. Frank says, no one will believe him, and he hears the noises and calls Clark. While this is going on, the big question is coming up to me, why doesn't Jimmy go to work? I mean, that's where he was going when all the crazy craziness went down with the lady in black and X-40 at the bus stop. Why didn't he just go to work after all that, instead of just hanging around that crazy place? But Jimmy elects to stay at the apartment and hears noises again. And this time Jimmy calls Clark and doesn't let him hang up, and he kind of talks and you know what Clark is gonna just kinda let Jimmy talk and he puts the receiver down while he's tapping away at his typewriter and Jimmy is describing what he is hearing but now on the other side of the extension Clark is finally hearing the voices and he's finally gonna learn that Jimmy is not crazy. So the the show is nice enough to put some faces to the voices for us and we see Joe and X forty pushing a painting through a wall there. Apparently, the hole in the wall is right by the phone lines. That's what knocked out Jimmy's phone call before. But the phone line is still connected, and Clark is still there. And Jimmy is pleading with Clark to talk. But as soon as Clark hears what's going on, he's out of there. He doesn't hang up on Jimmy, but he just leaves the phone laying on his desk. And the crooks hear Superman arrive, and he's found the warehouse. Now, the lady in black is going to show up again to check on Jimmy. <laughs> she comes in the apartment. He wants absolutely no part of her. And apparently, her job is to make sure Jimmy is not going to interfere with their art heist, she is going to take him somewhere at gunpoint. But she doesn't really get very far. As that's happening, Superman shows up in the vault and bangs X-40 and Joe's heads together, knocking them out. Then Superman comes up the stairs, he's going after Frank, who hilariously, after not being able to kill Superman, knocks himself out on his own front door. So there he goes. Must have ran too hard into the, into the door. Then, then, then Superman lets himself into Mrs. Jones' apartment where Jimmy and the Lady in Black are waiting. This is where Superman explains the scheme to Jimmy and what they've done to try to discredit him. And the lady in black just stands there the whole time feigning ignorance and not understanding. But Superman is having none of it. He gives us a bad blown away pun and he blows the veil off the lady in black's head. And it reveals her to be Mrs. Frank, like I suspected. I like this ending. You know, after he apprehends Mrs. Frank and the rest of the crew, Superman fishes the mystery novel out of the trash. And Jimmy excitedly calls Clark to ask if he heard it. Now, Superman comes back and says, I'm sure he did, winks, and then the episode ends with a shot of the painting. Now, instead of two open eyes, the painting is winking. The right eye is closed, like George Reeves would, and the left eye is open. Like I said, a creepy wink from a creepy painting. So, overall, this was not as bad episode by any stretch of the imagination. Not even as silly as I remember, even though I thought Superman was a little harsh with Jimmy. Yeah, I think I would have preferred if he talked to Jimmy a little bit more and given him the benefit of the doubt a little bit more, but he didn't. And I guess all's well that ends well. That's really all I got on that episode. So I'm going to take a quick break. I'm going to play a promo. Then I'm going to come back with Star of Fate. Hang around, folks. Stop it, listen. Stop it, listen to me. Listen. Listen. Listen to me. They're not human. Everyone. They're here already. Your next. November 4th. 1988, Earth is invaded by an alien alliance composed of several species, including the Dominators, the Kuns, the Danigarians, and the Durlins. 
and they want our superheroes. Even though Australia has been decimated, the United Nations response is unequivocal. Drop dead. First Strike, the Invasion podcast, takes you back to that moment in time and covers the entire Invasion DC Comics crossover. Issue by issue, tie-in by tie-in. Join Bass and Siskoid at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on iTunes. First Strike, the Invasion podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Remember, Melbourne. All right, welcome back, folks. We're going to head right into Star Fate. Original broadcast date was February 22nd, 1954. Writers were Roy Hamilton and Leroy H. Zeron. Director was Tommy Carr. Guest cast included Lawrence Ryle as Dr. Gregory Barnack, Paul E. Burns as Mr. Matlin Whitlock, Gene Deacon as Alma Dennis, Ted Hecht as Ahmed, Tony DiMario as March, and Arthur Space as Dr. Wilson. And now for our synopsis, brought to you by supermanhomepage.com. Ahmed, manservant of the late Dr. Pearson, has been instructed by his deceased mentor to auction off a mysterious box wrapped in lead foil to two bidders, Dr. Gregory Barnack and Mr. Matlin Whitlock. The last wishes of Dr. Pearson, my master, will be obeyed to the letter. It is for that reason that I've come to Metropolis. And Dr. Pearson insisted on this private auction with only two participants bidding on what may or may not be in that box? The box is not to be opened. The university Egyptologist, Dr. Barnack, and Mr. Whitlock, the proprietor of a curio shop in Metropolis, both old acquaintances of Dr. Pearson, are to bid for the box. They may know what is inside. I do not. I do not care to know. Excuse me. Of course. Yes? Please. Send Dr. Barnack up. But why did you call our paper? Surely you're not interested in the publicity. Not for the box or for the auction, but only that possibly the memory of Dr. Pearson, a great archaeologist and uh, almost a father to me, may possibly be enhanced. We understand, Mr. Ahmed. The two men were acquaintances of Dr. Pearson, and there seems to be some animosity between them from the start. Reporters Lois Lane and Clark Kent are covering the event for the Daily Planet. Outrageous dollar amounts are bandied about, leaving Clark to believe there is more to the package than meets the eye. He leaves to call the office to see if there's any information on Whitlock and Barnack. As he does this, Lois sees something in the room's mirror. Dr. Barnack points a gun at Whitlock's back. Dr. Barnack has paid $10,000 for Dr. Pearson's box. Whitlock urges him not to open it because it contains evil that some consider a curse. Uh, Dr. Barnack, about a story on the contents of that box. Not now. Please, Barnack, you must listen to me. You've cost me enough already, Whitlock. Please, Barnack, don't open that box. It's evil. It's got to be destroyed. You must listen to me. Get away from me. Open that box, please. I'm telling you the truth, man. Don't open that box. Barnack's only response is to strike Whitlock, whose head makes contact with the nearby wall, causing him to fall. Clark returns to assist Lois in helping the injured man. He tried to stop Barnack to give him some kind of warning about not opening that box, and Barnack paid $10,000 for it. I'm all right, thank you. Thank you for helping me. Well, you can help us, sir, if you will. $10,000 in a mysterious box would make a wonderful story. You can tell us, can't you? No, it mustn't spread any further. It must be stopped. But what must be stopped? I'm, I'm sorry, I, I must get back to my shop. But, Mr... However... All three people cannot help but be curious as to why Gregory Barnack wants the lead foil package so desperately. Barnack and his secretary, Alma Dennis, have brought the strange package to his home. Even though the lead foil was removed, Barnack has ordered Ms. Dennis not to open the ornate box until he can do more research on it. Before he can do that, however, he must go to the bank to deposit the funds for the check he wrote to Ahmed. After Barnack leaves, Ms. Dennis is overcome with curiosity. She does the exact opposite of what her employer had instructed. He, she discovers a large sapphire within, and her joy is suddenly cut short. Alma Dennis clutches her throat and falls into a state of unconsciousness. Clark Kent has escorted Matlin Whitlock to his curio shop in Metropolis. In addition to seeing Whitlock's series of marionettes used to entertain the children, including one of Superman, Kent learns that the shopkeeper wishes for the box that Burnack purchased to be destroyed at all costs. Neither Clark nor Whitlock intend to give up on their quest for the parcel and the mystery surrounding it. Lois and cover reporter Jimmy Olsen have found Miss Dennis barely alive on Dr. Barnack's floor. Still alive, but barely breathing. I'd better call an ambulance. Just a moment. What are you two doing here? The box. Where is it? Give it to me. We haven't got your precious box. We got here just a few seconds ago. Shouldn't you be more concerned about her? So, Whitlock was right. 
Right about what? Don't open the box, he said. Well, she did open it. And the curse, or whatever mysterious power she met with, overcame her. But this is nonsense. It's sheer superstition, Dr. Barnack. Certainly you don't... He was right. But I know there's an answer. A way of escaping this. But I've got to have the box. Whitlock. He must have taken it. I'm sure of it. Curio shop. Whitlock speaking. Who? Oh, Barnack. Yes, yes, I have it right here. I thought as much. It's mine, Whitlock, and I'm coming after it. I want it. This box doesn't belong to anyone, Barnack. It belongs to the past, an evil past, and I'm doing away with it. You saw what it did to your secretary. Well, I'm putting it where you won't find it, Barnack, where you or no one else will ever be harmed by it. I'm putting it in my safe. In Mercy's name, get help for this poor girl. You do it. I haven't got the time. Jimmy is left behind to care for her, while Lois returns to the planet to convince Clark to help her follow Barnack. Whitlock is studying hieroglyphics about the box while his employee, March, puts it in the curio shop owner's safe. March makes the lethal error of opening the package. He, like Alma Dennis, is unconscious. Now, two people have been stricken by the curse placed upon this ancient object. Barnack has entered the curio shop. He holds Whitlock at gunpoint to take back the box. At the same time, Lois and Clark arrive to find the door locked. Whitlock must pretend to be busy, otherwise Barnack will kill him. Whitlock, in an effort to ask for help from the reporters, uses his Superman puppet to rescue another one. Unfortunately, they merely believe he is rehearsing for one of the shows for the children after school. Lois and Clark's leaving makes Whitlock understand that he might not be able to get out of this dangerous situation in which he finds himself. Barnack has bound and gagged Whitlock. There is also a small bottle of nitroglycerin on, on a cuckoo clock. Should the bird strike it, the liquid will fall, and the impact will create an explosion, destroying everything in the room, including Whitlock. Barnack has taken the box and $10,000 in jewelry to compensate for Whit Whitlock's theft of it. Clark has suddenly realized that Whitlock was sending a message to him and Lois. I love curio shops, Clark. They're such interesting places. Yeah, that Whitlock's quite a character, isn't it? You know, I'll bet knowing the planet's a contact point for Superman, he put on that whole act for our benefit. <laughs> Wait a minute. Of course he did. It was a message. Remember how he acted out the part where the, the doll fell and the Superman puppet came in and caught it just in the nick of time? He wanted Superman. Lois, you go back to the office and tell him we may have a real story for him soon. I'm going back to that shop. While Lois goes back to the planet, he returns to the curio shop as Superman. The Man of Steel unties Whitlock and shields him from the nitroglycerin explosion that now leaves only a hole in the wall. And you are completely unhurt? So are you, I'm glad to say, sir. Barnack left that bottle accidentally. Or on purpose. Did he take the box with him? He thinks he did. I knew he was coming for it, so I'm afraid I led him astray. This is the real box. The one he stole was a decoy. It looks innocent enough. Yes, but it carries a fearful curse. A curse that has already been felt by Barnack's secretary and my clerk. Your clerk? We must get him to a hospital at once. Marcy General's Dr. Wilson will do everything in his power to examine the mysterious jewel box. However, neither he nor Lois believes in curses. I wish I could report that we have been able to identify the condition of Barnack's secretary and the clerk, but well, it's an unknown fact. I would say that the closest description I could give of the victims of this, this curse jewel box is that they're in a state of suspended animation. Well, how long can they live in that condition? Only a matter of hours. Now that Mr. Whitlock has been good enough to bring it to us, I'll send it to the laboratory for immediate analysis. But it's ridiculous to believe such a superstition. Why, look here. Look, the jewel. Put her on the couch. Please. Surely. Mr. Kent, don't! Chief, Dr. Wilson, look here, please. This needle, it was in the lock spring and broke off. There's the answer, an injected poison. What a monstrous sapphire. Yes. Oh, no wonder Dr. Barnack wanted it. May I see this, Mr. Kent? This carved leaf and the hieroglyphic under it, the symbol represents antidote. And the leaf? It's the leaf of the pyramid plant. And according to legend, 
It only grows at the base of the Great Pyramid in Egypt. Egypt? That's days away. Even by jet plane, by that time it'll be too late. Well, there is a chance, Kent, if we can contact Superman. Yes, Chief, I'll go back to the office and see what I can do. Excuse me, sir. I wonder, Kent opened this box too, yet he didn't succumb to the poison. Why? That is strange. I'll have to ask him about that. Superman lifts a pyramid to get the plant needed for the antitoxin and brings it to Mercy General. Meanwhile, Jimmy has confronted Whitlock. Mr. Whitlock! If Dr. Barnack did do something wrong, he was the kind of man to go around acting violently. I sure wouldn't want to have it on my conscience that I turned him loose. All right, son. I'll admit I'm just being selfish. But Barnack stole $10,000 worth of jewels from my safe. And he threatened to turn me in for stealing the box from his house. That's why I kept quiet. Now, well, you better call the police. Yeah, sure. I'll do that. But first, he must speak with Barnack. All right, Dr. Barnack. You'll save everybody a lot of trouble if you just come along. Would you mind explaining yourself? Now, I'd say it was you that had the explaining to do about those jewels you stole from Whitlock's safe. Oh. Let's go. Of course. You've notified the police. That's where we're going. Right now. And I guess you win, young man. I'll get the jewels. A real red-hot newspaper man, eh? Well, I'll give you a chance to cool off. With the antidote made and given to the poison victims, Superman can return to the Daily Planet as Clark Kent with the good news. He arrives to find editor Perry White and Matlow Whitlock discussing the fact that Jimmy believes that Dr. Barnack should be in police custody. Neither man realizes that Barnack has trapped the young man in an Egyptian mummy case while he plans to leave Metropolis with the stolen jewels and the ancient sapphire. He originally wanted to buy the box to sell the gem on the black market. And now, my meddling young friend, goodbye. Help! Help! Police! Help! Police! Superman! I knew you were dangerous, Dr. Barnack. And now with an attempted murder charge, you can be put where you belong. You can come on now, Jimmy. Nice acting. Golly, Superman, I'm sure glad you changed places with me. I had to. You're much more valuable as a witness than a victim. Here, turn him over to the police. He's all yours. All right, Dr. Barnack. Let's go. Lois and the others poison have been cured. Only one thing remains on the mind of Lois, Jimmy, and Perry. <laughs> and furthermore, I think it was the box and not the snake that put Cleopatra to sleep. Believe me, I'd rather be a revived reporter than a sleeping Cleopatra. <laughs> There's one thing that's bothering me, though. Dr. Wilson found that poison was so powerful, I can't understand Clark's not being affected by it. I forgot to ask him. You forgot to ask me what, Chief? When you opened that box, Excuse I... me, sir. How are you, Lois? Fine, Clark. Wait a minute. When did you get that adhesive on your thumb? Oh, well, uh... It's no wonder the needle broke off. See, Miss Laney had that adhesive tape there, and that's what broke the needle. I don't know. I'm pretty confused. So am I, Lois. So am I. All right. You know, they tell these people, don't open the box, don't open the box, don't open the box. What do they do? They open the box. <sighs> Sometimes I really don't like when stories require that the actors be stupid in order to advance the plot. The characters, rather, not so much the actors. Anyway, this episode was adapted into the Superboy comic book story Jewel of Jeopardy, which appeared in Superboy number 34 in July of 1954. The episode starts off with the introduction to an interesting auction, where two bidders are bidding on a box with undisclosed contents. I don't know why anyone wants to drop thousands of dollars on a box in which they don't know what's in it. For me, it's generally a major decision on whether or not I want to drop $10 for lunch. So, anyway. First, we meet Dr. Barnack, who is keeping secrets from his secretary. He doesn't want her to come into the auction with him. He just wants her to wait outside, like a dutiful secretary should. Apparently, Ahmed, who was an apprentice of Dr. Pearson, who has now died, he wants Lois and Clark there for the memory of his mentor. How nice. And now, Mr. Whitlock enters, and there's obviously some kind of animosity between the two men. We really don't know why. But Whitlock is very cold when acknowledging his presence, while Barnack is kind of putting out a little bit warmer personality here, but not much. It's clear these two men don't like each other. And like I said, they're bidding very high for this box. 
But it seems as though they know something about it. So, yeah, why not? They must know more than we do. So we're just going to assume that it's valuable to them. But you can tell from early on it's valuable to each of them for different reasons. Barnack wants to box for his own purposes. And it seems as though Whitlock wants to box, mainly to keep Barnack away from it. Each of the two participants has their own agenda. And Clark points out to Lois that the box is lined with lead. Even if Superman were there, he couldn't see what was inside of it. Lois doesn't say anything about how Clark might know that. She just kind of lets it go. So, nothing to see here. Moving along. Clark gets up and leaves for a minute to go do some research or call the paper or something. And Lois kind of glances in the mirror to, I think, her left. And we see Barnack has a gun on Whitlock, and he wins the box auction for $10,000. And he promptly writes a check. Lois wants to interview him for a story, because that's why Lois is there, and Barnack pretty much runs away and blows her off. Whitlock is clearly afraid of something, and after the auction is won by Barnack, that doesn't stop Whitlock from kind of running out of the hallway after him and kind of pleading with him to not open the box, or to, at the very least to be very careful with the box. But all Whitlock's efforts really get him are thrown to the side, and he looks as though he hits his head on the wall before he kind of slumps down to the floor in a heap. So after Clark comes back, he tries to sell Whitlock on a story, but Whitlock doesn't want anyone to know about the box, and he won't be very helpful. And, you know, you could tell just from his body language that Whitlock is terrified of this box, and his terror has to do with more than just getting thrown up against the wall and knocked unconscious for a few minutes. And even though Barnack has the box, he is acting like he's afraid of it as well. But right now, his more immediate concern is making sure he can cover the check he just wrote. Apparently, $10,000 was a little bit more than he was prepared to spend. So we don't know how he's going to make sure that check clears, but he leaves, regardless, to do whatever. For all we know, he could be going to lunch. So, guess what his assistant does? Yes, she opens the box that he told her not to use. And in retaliation, the, the box uses the force to choke her out. Now, here's an interesting note. When Lois and Clark go back to Whitlock's shop, Clark sees the puppets and asks them if he makes puppets too. Whitlock says no, but they are a hobby of his, indicating that he doesn't create the puppets. Well, this podcast is a hobby of mine, and I create it, so there's no real reason why Whitlock couldn't create puppets for his hobby. I don't know. Maybe he just collects them and buys them and doesn't produce them. Well, anyway, Clark is still trying to pump information for him on the box, but Whitlock is still silent. But all of a sudden now, he has an interest in the planet's relationship with Superman. Meanwhile, Lois and Jimmy have shown up at Barnack's place because they're not giving up on the story. That's where they find Alma unconscious, and Barnack finds them in his house. And this is when Barnack, Barnack realized something is wrong with the, about the box, which is now gone. And this is when we learn about the curse that whoever opens the box will be killed. Lois is unbelieving, but it's apparent that Barnack is. And now we find that Whitlock has the box, who for some reason admits to... Barnack that he has it. I'm not exactly sure what that accomplished. He could have just said that he knew nothing about it and possibly saved himself a whole ton of trouble. I don't know if Barnack would have believed him if he said he didn't have it, but it doesn't seem as though Whitlock admitting he has the box is the right play here. At the very least, telling him he doesn't have the box might stall Barnack for a few minutes, long enough for maybe Whitlock to do something with the box. Anyway, how did he get the box? How long was it between the time Alma passed out and the time Lois and Jimmy got there to find her? And Whitlock seems to know what happened to Alma. Did he go there while she was unconscious and just leave her there on the floor? That doesn't seem very ethical. But I guess he couldn't call the police and report what happened without giving himself away. I guess an anonymous tip to the police was out of the question. I don't know. And, and while it's still debatable whether telling Barnack that he has the box is a smart play... Lois leaves Jimmy with the unconscious girl, probably the only girl Jimmy can handle, because Barnack wants nothing to do with calling an ambulance for Hama. He has better things to do, which we're going to find out later, is to track down the box of Whitlock's place. <laughs> now Whitlock tells his assistant March to put the box away and not to open it. And what does this dumbass do? He opens the box, and then he keels over. These people are grown-ups, folks. Adults. They're not children. You would think that if somebody tells them they shouldn't open a box because it's dangerous, these people would do what they're told and not open the box. I don't know. I dislike stories that require people be stupid. And the characters in this episode are bringing a whole load of stupid. At least the assistants are. 
Everybody else is doing just fine. So Barnack finds his way to Whitlock's with a gun, and that's when Lois and Clark show up, and Whitlock is under orders not to let them in. So he puts a Superman puppet on his hand, and he has a Superman puppet catch another puppet. And meanwhile, on the other side of the glass, Lois and Clark just kind of knock on the glass and wave at him like a bunch of idiots. But I don't think they get the message that Whitlock is trying to send. So they leave. No more to the wiser, and this gets Whitlock gagged, and on his way to the safe, Barnack puts the explosives on the door of the cuckoo clock that we saw earlier. This can't be good. Once, hit, once we get to the top of the hour, that thing is definitely going to fall. So then after that, we go to a decently nut shot of Lois and Clark driving back to the office. You see the city kind of moving in the background, and they're in the front seat talking. And then Clark kind of talks himself into silence when he realizes that Whitlock was sending him a message with his act with the Superman puppet. Now, in order to change the Superman, Clark kind of unceremoniously dumps Lois in the middle of the street with the car. And then she runs away from the car as Clark runs into the alley to change. Why didn't she just take the car with her back to the office? Unanswered questions. Who's writing this stuff? So, Superman goes back to the curio shop and finds Whitlock and unties him. Unfortunately, that gives Whitlock enough time to tell Superman about the nitroglycerin on the cuckoo clock. And when the clock goes off, Superman makes a nice diving catch and lets it explode in the corner of the shop blasting a hole clear through the wall. We'll see a similar shot to that in next season with the wedding of Superman down the line. But this one looks pretty good as Superman just blows the hole right through the door, right through the, the wall, and you have to see right outside. And kind of this is where we find out that Whitlock has put one over on Barnack. He switched the boxes after it took out his assistant, March, and the one Barnack leaves with is just covered in tinfoil. Which is interesting because earlier we saw Whitlock put the box on the tinfoil but never wrap it. So I guess we are to assume that the wrapped box that Barnack took was the real one, but it wasn't. Now we're at the hospital, and D Dr. Wilson here can't identify what's wrong with Alma and Whitlock's assistant. He just says they're kind of in suspended animation, and now Lois opens the box. It makes me think of a line from Lois and Clark, Season 2, Tempest Fugitive. I know he was talking about a little bit different subject matter, but I have to ask right now. How dumb was she? Two people are comatose after opening this box. So, Lois, why did you open it? And why are you surprised that you're suffering the same fate as the rest of them? And then, for good measure, Clark opens it and finds the needle that is poisoning anyone who opens the box. Apparently, it was embedded in the lock spring, so the curse is narrowed down to a poison tip needle. And this gives Whitlock some time to decipher the mystery, that the vegetation they need is in Egypt under the pyramid, but it's too far away for anyone to, to go get it immediately. But thankfully, this is all during a show called The Adventures of Superman, in which there is a character who can fly very fast. After Clark leaves, Dr. Wilson goes over to Perry and wonders why Clark wasn't affected by the curse. But Perry just mentioned they'll have to ask about it later. Gee, Perry, I wonder what possible explanation there could be for this. <sighs> now we see Superman flying to Egypt. He is going east, though he is flying from left to right on your screen. And I love how the cityscape dissolves into the sea... And then the mountains, you know, just very nice with the clouds used as a transitional shot from the city to the sea to the mountains. Some of the black and white flying stuff is so well done that I'm kind of sad that we won't see this stuff this good during the color seasons that are, that are coming. So, of course, Superman finds what he's looking for rather quickly under the base of the pyramid. And he's on his way home and we basically get the opposite of the shot that we saw him going there. Now he's going from right to left like he normally does and is on his way home. In the hospital, there's a nice shot of Perry looking pensive as Lois lays there comatose. I still will contend that it's Lois' own fault for opening the box when two of the people have already suffered from doing the same thing. Superman brings the plant back, and with the poison gone, the box is returned to Barnack, even though I'm pretty sure that check he didn't clear yet. But he did legally purchase it, so the box is his, and there's no reason for anybody to keep it from him. After this, after everybody's in recovery, Jimmy follows Whitlock out of the room, and I like his reasoning here about how he wouldn't want a dangerous man like Barnack being free on his conscience. And this is where we find out that Whitlock is really in no position to turn Barnack in, because he would pretty much be right in the next cell for burglary, because he must have broken into Barnack's house after Alma had been assaulted by the box and brought it back to his place. Hell, he didn't even report anything about Alma, so I wonder if something happened to her. He could have been an accessory for murder or something like that, or at least negligent in her death. But... Now, after his spirited talk with Mr. Whitlock, we get more of uh, Jimmy with all heart and no head. He's going to make a citizen's arrest on Barnack, but I'm sure he didn't call the police to take them with him. Otherwise, he wouldn't be alone. All this gets is Jimmy held up at gunpoint. 
because he allowed Barnack to go get the jewels. First rule of citizen's arrest, if you're unarmed and you're trying to arrest somebody, don't give them the opportunity to go get something. It's possible they're going to come back with a gun. And that's what happened here. Dumbass. So eventually Clark shows back up at Perry's office and to report in, and he almost, after Whitlock and Perry leave, Clark almost gets caught cheating in Superman in Perry's office because Perry forgot his cigar. Fortunately, Whitlock, who I don't recall having smoked this entire episode, happens to have one in his pocket. Saved by the Cuban, I guess. At this point, Jimmy is tied up in a sarcophagus because Barnack is an, is an archaeologist. Why do something normal when you can lock somebody in a sarcophagus? Then we get another great shot of Superman flying away from the camera. And he goes straight to Barnack's house. And we never see him land, nor do we even see him trade places with Jimmy. So as he, Barnack leaves, the camera focuses on the sarcophagus while Jimmy yells. Barnack shoots the case, and Superman comes out. Jimmy was hiding behind the curtain. It's a good thing a ricochet didn't hit Jimmy. Otherwise, we would have had a real messy situation on our hands. Now... About the gun here. That revolver that Barnack is using, I believe, holds six bullets. And Barnack fired six shots before Superman took the gun. So basically, Jimmy is holding an empty gun over him. And at the end, we have the dangling plot thread about why the poison didn't affect Clark. So he goes to Lois so everyone can see the band-aid on his slum. And that's why, according to Jimmy, it didn't affect him. Really? A band-aid stopped a potent poison? <sighs> I'm with Lois. I'm not sure I'm buying that either. She lets it go, and I'm going to let it go, because I have nothing further to say about this episode. So, next time, I will be bringing my Season 2 coverage to a close with The Whistling Bird and Around the World with Superman. And then, as a special bonus, I will finish off next week's episode with the special promotion, Stamp Day for Superman. So, till then, if you have anything to say about anything I've covered, you can send me an email at manofscreen at gmail.com. You can join the Facebook group, just put Man of Screen Podcast into your search feed and the group should come up. You can find the show on Twitter at Man of Screencast. And if you like, you can leave me reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. That will really help with the profile for the show. And if you're interested in anything else, any other podcast I do, I am also a somewhat regular on the Fear of the Walking Dead cast over on the Two True Freaks Network. Right now, we're covering Season 7, the current episodes of The Walking Dead on AMC. So, till next time. Thanks for listening, folks. I'll see you around. Don't miss the next thrill-packed episode in the amazing Man of Screen podcast. The Man of Screen podcast is produced by Mike Zemo, and all opinions on the show are those of Mike Zemo and his guests and no one else. All music is in sound clips used in the making of the show or for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All trademarks are copyright their original copyright holders. The Man of Screen Podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network and can be found at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. The homepage for the show is manofscreen.podomatic.com and you can email the show at manofscreen at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.